0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. In order to uh, not make this too ordinarily conferency, It's going to be uh, run more like a live television show. We're at the home of Channel 4, so I'm calling up Carla Buzassi of uh, Huffington Post UK and Peter York and their panel. Uh, The panel are not going to opine one after the other for five minutes with you waiting for half an hour before you get a word in edgeways. If anyone wants to make a comment, uh, as soon as they feel the urge, they should put their hand up and hopefully one of the fearsome duo that is Carla and Peter, and they are fearsome, will, uh, will see you. So without further ado, and to introduce the panel for the opening session, Digital Mobility, Ideas and Identity in a Mobile World, Carla Buzashi,
1: Peter York. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having us here this morning. I quite like the idea of being a fearsome duo. <laughs> a convergent format. <laughs> right um, so my co-chair at the event today, um, the wonderful uh, Peter York, Um, who is a cultural commentator and associate for Editorial Intelligence, who have obviously put on today's event. Um, Peter also co-founded the Influential Management Consultancy, SRU. Uh, He is a former board trustee of Arts and Business and of the Tate Members' Council. Um, But perhaps most famously, this is where I know you from, um, he co-wrote the 80s bestseller, The Sloan Ranger Handbook, um, and his eighth book, uh, cooler faster more expensive uh, the return of the sloan ranger which i haven't read but i am now definitely going won't to like why, won't I like, why won't i like it it's a terrible book <laughs> um, and uh, his latest bbc documentary the rise and fall of the ad man was shown on bbc 2 uh, last september
2: carla buzacci and that's hungarian yes and and it it's all because of her hubby, yes. is editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post UK. That's meaning she isn't Ariana. she didn't go out with Bernard Levin or any of that. But it's exciting all the same. And it's the UK edition of the biggest news website in the US. Yeah, we're, not, and we're not
1: quite the biggest news site in the UK. I'm working on that. Today. Well,
2: you see. And she's responsible for absolutely everything, all editorial output and standards on the site. And what HuffPost c- currently does is news, entertainment, celebrity, culture, politics, sport, education and tech sessions. So you've got no industrial correspondent and no network correspondent no, or any of those. No, no, and i really not
1: planning on having either of those in the short term really future.
2: Central things and you've got other brands, other identities.
1: Yes. So we have another couple of websites I run as well: My Daily, uh, which is a fashion and beauty site, and ParentDish, which is a parenting (coughs) site.
2: Always useful. Always useful. Always useful. (laughs) Um, Now our gorgeous pouting panel of, uh, as you can say, contestants. And I'm going to do them alphabetically. (laughs) And we'll do the first three, and then um, you'll do the next two. uh, Starting with Caroline Daniel, who is editor of the FT Weekend which is the weekend's most sophisticated treat possible, as you all know, because you're part of that very, very special group. And she's done all those wonderful things before. Before, she was the FT's comment and analysis editor, and before that, part of the Washington Conspiracy, the FT's White House correspondent. Before that, amazingly and fascinatingly, was at the New Statesman, and at The Economist, and won prizes and everything. And now, uh, David Erasmus, put your hand up. Th- this young man, what as a teenage serial digital entrepreneur, which is a, a thing in itself, isn't it? And uh, now he he founded all sorts of things and sold them in, in very rapidly. And now he's a philanthropist. Are you a philanthropist?
3: I really wouldn't say that, no, but <laughs> we are of. building a, I mean, a platform to yes. help people give. Uh,
2: uh, well, I think investigate is, uh, is the answer to that. Um, but what he now has, he's the founder and CEO of Givvy, which is a lovely word, which is a mobile and social platform to connect donors with the causes they care about. I don't know whether this is going to be like online new philanthropy capital or something more fast
3: and fragmented and more... Easier to think Facebook for for giving. For for ordinary people, like (laughs) Little people. I think they're the same size as everybody else, but, um, yeah, for smaller donations, micro donations typically on mobile. Because
2: New Philanthropy Capital, if you know about that, was for giant people and giant corporations to think about their giving in a totally analytical way. So they got bunches of people who were just like the people who, you know, were merchant banks analysis, analysts. Now, um, Nick Harkaway, who is in the very interesting knitwear, um, uh, it must be, it, it's like tie-dye, isn't it? But it's on wool, it's really wonderful. I
4: think uh, it was 3D printed,
2: actually. 3D printed. <laughs>
1: we but need, I our, like we th- need our knitwear correspondents yes. yes. to that uh, Knitwear
2: is a source of eternal fascination. And you can update knitwear, you see. You can do it in that way. Um, he's an author and blogger, and the important thing here is that he's, his new non-fiction book, The Blind Giant, examines technology's influence on politics, so, society and commerce. So he, and he spoke at the Google Big Tent. Is that a good or a bad thing for a person? Five years from now, in terms of your identity, will that be a good or a bad thing on your record, like Facebook indiscretions?
4: Oh, well, if you ask, is Andrew still here? Andrew Keen. No, Andrew will say it's bad. There we go, in the corner. There, you say, but it's a, it's a big thought. It's like thinking,
2: I gave a talk on Second Life four years ago. I didn't, actually. Of course I wouldn't. I mean, it's like that. It can affect your identity in a very adverse way. And anyway, he knows about the plasticity of brains and will talk to us, You know, the impact of all these things on people's brains. You'll have a go, won't you?
1: You okay, uh, so M.T. Ramey, um, as well as being a very difficult woman to pin down, we, play, we played phone ping-pong or voicemail yesterday for, uh, for most of the day. Anyway, she's executive uh, chairman of the fastest-growing digital agency, Think, uh, which recently topped Marketing Week's reputation survey, um, and perhaps best known amongst us uh, consumer types as launching Pottermore for J.K. Rowling recently. Um, she's also probably very at home here um, as, the, uh, as a non-executive uh, director for Channel Four, um, and in a voluntary capacity, a vice chair of Skillset, which is the Sector Skills Council for the creative industries. And our final uh, panel member, Derek Wyatt, the former Labour MP, um, apparently very pleased to have his life back after stepping down a few years ago. Uh, currently, the chairman of Trinity Hospice in Clapham, um, which means raising nine million pounds every year. Um, You're going to have to tell us how you do that. That sounds like a pretty tall order to me. Um, He also founded the Women's Sports Foundation, Dot TV on Sky, the Oxford Internet Institute and Digital Today for the Nation. So I think we should probably get into our conversation now. What do you reckon?
2: We absolutely should. Before we do, uh, I'd like to read at you, and the reason I have to read it at you is local failures of communication. Something about Ide- ideas, identity in the online world. And it comes, I'm sorry for this great laminate, but it comes from something I wrote for Intelligent Life, which is the economist's luxury uh, thing. And it's about somebody called Dan Schwabel. And Dan Schwabel is in the personal branding business for the young of America. Don Schwabel is instantly on. He's so on, he's practically in vertical takeoff. Over the telephone from Boston, the 25-year-old, quotes, leading personal branding expert for Gen Y, gets straight down to telling me how to manage my online presence. It is, he says, all about getting your definitive statement, your unique claim, to the top of your personal Google search result, then taking it from there, out onto new media platforms, full motion video, and social networking sites, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Alert, everyone's online, Dan says. Everyone's visible. Dan is highly visible. Photos and video clips roadblock his sight. His look is almost retro geek. Not so much Silicon Valley guy as 1970s corporate. Sensible trousers and shoes. Sensible haircut. Could be 30-something. Think about that. Visibility, he says, is the key to success. You've got to manage your brand, he demands. You have to claim your domain name. He's bullying me, you see. Then you have to... have your personal brand statement, connecting your name with your positioning again and again. You want to own your topic everywhere, cross-linking between all your social sites, and you have to keep out pushing out content relating to your topic. It's a marketing machine. Dan has written a book, Me Too O, chock full of this sort of content-free, breathless injunction. It starts, of course, with his own story an introverted straight-A student who didn't network, work very well in the real world. He used the new online toolkit to get profile in the old media world and, as a result, is interviewed everywhere. ABC TV television, Fast Company, a raft of marketing trade mags. He plays it all proudly, almost artlessly. I ask him how he thinks all this might work in other un-American places. Europe, for instance, where cultural attitudes are different. There's a very long silence because Dan hasn't been to Europe. So um, there's one bit of idea and identity in a new world and a mobile world because we're always googling people including ourselves, aren't we? Some funny stories from our contestant. MT, you have a funny story.
5: And you know what it is. But I can't remember. Um, This is a story against myself actually. uh, Peter asked us to um, think of some Anecdotes. I'm sure we'll talk about some serious things in a minute. but A um, the, the, the few things have happened to me recently that have definitely made me think about the issue of identity and privacy. Um, one thing is that my appearance has totally changed. For all kinds of boring reasons, I will not bore you with why, but I have completely transformed the way I look in the last couple of years. I mean, literally transformed. So much so that I can go to parties with friends, and they don't know I'm there. I did go to one AGM, and the chairman uh, gave the AGM my apologies, I was actually there. So it, it is a pretty extreme change. And this this was brought kind of brutally home to me um, a couple of months ago when I ordered a cab to go, uh, from my house, where I've lived for 12 years, to the, to Heathrow, to the airport, and um, had a very convivial journey with this uh, cab driver. It was a nice day. He said, uh, he said, you know, did you ever meet that woman that used to live in your house? She was a right grumpy old cow. <laughs> and I realised that that was me. And um, I think mean, that's a terrible thing to hear, isn't it, about yourself? Obviously, I'd had a bad day. But what do you do under those circumstances? Do you say... I am that grumpy old cow, would you like to expand? Or do you say, tell me more about that grumpy old cow? I, did, I never did meet her. So I did the latter, actually, and I, play, I played it along, which wasn't very honest, but I just couldn't tell him that I was, in fact, that person. So, so it really did make me think it. It was a terrible bringing up of um, actually how much our visual, because I have the same voice, I am the same person, how much our visual identity is, is so powerful. Um, related to the same thing I I decided that I would um, have to because I had a 20 year old picture or something on Facebook I had gone into Facebook at the dawn of Facebook time and put this picture up there and actually I'm not a user of Facebook I'm extremely passive about it I'm terrified by it actually um, but I, just, I thought, I can't be having this picture up there, which doesn't even remotely resemble me. So I went in one Saturday afternoon, full of bravado, uh, to Facebook. It's like crossing the Great Divide. And if, if you don't go in very often, and I, I, most of you probably do, but I don't, um, it is like jumping into a fast-moving torrent. I mean, you're completely out of control as soon as you get there. You're completely out of control. So I attempted, I thought this was great, to. Post, post this new newish picture of me up on Facebook. I, I tried to do it, I, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I did the wrong thing. I put it in the wall instead of the profile and it appeared somewhere I didn't want it to appear and it took another thing away and it was just chaos, chaos. I, I was like, oh no. But then the worst thing was that, that Facebook kind of um, editorialised my actions into probably the saddest words in the English language, which are M.T. Rainey has commented on her own profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> this, was absolute, this was something I did not like. Um, so I... Uh, God, I'm not going back there. I'm leaping away from Facebook and never to be seen again. But um, so I had a terrible experience. I think if you're not in the flow of these things, it is actually quite hard to get back into it. Um, and, and clearly, many, many people are. So I think there is—it's a, a, a cultural, personal thing. My final anecdote is 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 um, is about LinkedIn. I was recently at a lunch with uh, where I sat next to Jeff Weiner, who's the very charming young chief executive of, of um, LinkedIn from California. And uh, we were having a very nice conversation. I think it was about his brand, his brand, uh, you know, how he was feeling about his brand, which is my background. And um, he said, oh, "We must continue. We must continue this conversation." And um, he, uh, so I. Um, whipped out my business card. Well, this is not something you do to the chief executive of LinkedIn. I might as well have produced a fish carcass. Um, He was appalled by this. I had instantly exposed myself as a sort of digital dinosaur. Um, But, you know, I thought, of course business cards are redundant in the age of LinkedIn, but who knew this? I didn't know this. I'm, again, not a particularly, well, a very passive user of LinkedIn. But immediately that had shown me that business cards, these things we've all been kind of using for many years, is just a thing of the past for many people. So uh, these are the stories, and it's funny how we'll all have our different experiences of that, but it does really make you think about, A, how much things have changed, and B, just, just how just how hard it is to keep up with it all, and maybe we'll all just at some point say, no, thank you. OK,
1: David, have you committed social media suicide in a similar way?
3: A number of times. I've got one good and one bad, actually. I don't know if I can match that, but uh, in the early days, there was, uh, they both kind of revolve around Facebook stalking, to be honest with you. Um, and the, the first one was I, was I was interested in a girl many years ago, so I thought, great, let's have a little search on Facebook. Uh, I think I was friends with her already. And so I typed her name in, uh, she's still a friend now, called Laura Bond. Uh, but unfortunately, I had, instead of put it in the search bar, realised a few hours later that I had put it as my status. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave is Laura Bond, which is not what you want after you've just gone on one date with a girl. But, um, so I immediately found where the delete button was and, and got rid of that. But, um, and then more recently, I had a more positive experience. In uh, October last year, um, my current girlfriend... Isabel, I, uh, I met her and she was coming up to Newcastle where I was for a while working um, with a couple of my close friends and um, we had been sharing the music of a guy called um, Ben, um, i forgotten his name now, anyway, doesn't matter, Ben, no, new guy, I've forgotten his name, anyway, love him actually, funny I can't remember his name, one of my guys will probably shout it out, but anyway, brilliant guy and uh, Ben Howard, yes, got it, um, there we go, and uh, he was sold out for tickets in, in Newcastle and I was thinking, Oh God, there's nothing else to do in Newcastle this Friday night but I really want to take her. So I thought, what can I do? So it's more of a, uh, an analogy about the value you can create through social media, through direct connection. So what I decided to do, I'm not a very good musician but I wrote a little jingle on my guitar. Um, it's about the only tool I had available to me. I wrote a little jingle called Can You Help A Brother Out? And, um, you know, and I posted it onto YouTube and got all of my friends in the office to sort of tweet him up with it. And, uh, and uh, fired all these messages, then realized that the label was probably looking after his Twitter account. It didn't look particularly personal. So I thought, hmm, what can I do? Actually, two days later, I got a message. Oh, that's it. I, saw, I searched his name and saw a girl said she was at dinner with him. And uh, I thought, oh, I don't know who this girl is. Sister, girlfriend, random person, who knows. Searched her up, found her name, put it into Google, found her Facebook account, went on her Facebook account, stalking, and found that we had one mutual friend in common. I thought, yes. So I then messaged our mutual friend and said, this girl seems to know Ben Howard. You know, do you know her? Is there anything you can do? It seems that she actually works at the label. One thing led to another. Our mutual friend conveniently ended up working at the label. So we got four guest list tickets and managed to go to the gig, got the tickets on the Friday afternoon and uh, turned up and went on the Friday night. So I've uh, I've had some good experiences and some negative ones, but I guess the the, uh, moral of the story is that, that... the, the ability to correctly, um, directly connect, rather, um, makes it easy. If you can cut above all the chuff and all the, the noise in the social web with something slightly different, you can actually get some extremely interesting value out of it.
1: Persistence is key. Yeah. Really there as well. And
3: slightly stalkerish <laughs> tendencies.
6: Great results,
1: this
6: <laughs> instance. Do
1: FT
3: people do
2: these sorts of things?
6: Um, It's actually a really interesting debate at the Financial Times at the moment. Um, I had to do a tweet called FT Insider for a while, which is supposed to reveal fascinating insights about working at the weekend FT, and I did lots of earnest insights about how we put the paper together, trying to be very practical in FT. But actually, the only thing which took off was when I revealed that the end of the world was not nigh according to Mayan theory, because we had a piece in the FT about that. That took off, but all the earnest stuff I was doing didn't. But we have a big debate at the the moment about the FT, about who's allowed to have a Twitter account and how we're allowed to use it. We have guidelines at the moment. Martin Wolf, I think, will never tweet. Thank God for that. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to put whole paragraphs of Martian Wolf economic Armageddon into a tweet. Um, but at the FT, there's a, a debate about who's allowed to tweet and who's allowed to have their Twitter account referred to on the FT website. So at the moment, we have columnists who are allowed to have their Twitter feeds referred to at the end of their pieces but general journalists are not and the younger journalists are getting quite frustrated about this because obviously they are much more interested in developing their own personal brands and having their own voices whereas older people i suppose at the ft think it's about an institutional brand so there is an ongoing tension at the moment about what journalists are allowed to do at the ft on on twitter it's
1: very interesting the huffington post it's as you can imagine, the total opposite. So every article um, is linked for, to that author's Twitter feed, their Facebook profile, their Google Plus account, all of that's linked into our content management system. And they're encouraged not only to tweet from our main accounts, and we have accounts for every single section on the site, but also from their personal accounts. And our our guidelines are pretty much as, as short as, you know, don't do anything stupid. Um, and it's it's, I guess... In, when you're on a purely digital brand and a very young brand we are very experimental um, that's sort of part and parcel of it that's our marketing tool is the social web and therefore every single one of our journalists are sort of marketeers as part of what they're doing
6: we're also not allowed to put the word FT into our own Twitter accounts so it's, it's really quite controlled about what, how we're allowed to present ourselves very different yeah.
2: is that a good or a bad thing controlling it like that or is it controllable in the long term.
6: Well, at the end of the day, what matters to the FT, essentially, is authority. And so if you're tweeting rumours, mm-hmm. you're undermining the essential mm-hmm. brand of the FT. So we'd rather be... And journalists are not allowed to tweet their own news stories until it's gone up on FT.com, even if they want to shelf to say, I got the story. Um, so there are huge tensions rising, you know, which we never had before. Um, But, yeah, if you undermine the brand by doing something stupid, you undermine the whole business model of the FT.
2: So, Gravitas and Fast and Furious, Fast and Fragmented, are not the same thing. Can you maintain Gravitas, authority, and do all that
4: stuff? Or is the brain plastic? (laughs) Nick? I think first of all, the issue of authority is really interesting because if you look at something like the book Tweets from Tahrir, which is the the gathered tweets from the the Tahrir Square moment, you have a document there which is something which could not be assembled in any other way. You couldn't get those people to put their emotions and their moments second by second after the fact. It could only happen if you were recording it at the time Um, and the thing about it is it is multiple authorship in quite a serious way and people read it and they read Twitter and services like it in a different way from how you read a single author or a single authority piece because you're assembling in your mind your own version of the narrative of what took place and what you recognize very quickly is that if you're reading the, the uh, stream of thinking of somebody who's on the ground and somebody else who's on the ground, they will both have a different perspective from the guy who's up there with the Channel 4 camera and who's receiving news from London and so on. And the whole thing becomes a synthetic mixture. I think that's really important. And I think we've talked about control twice already. Um, And it's quite interesting. I mean, uh, M.T. Rainey mentioned control in the sense of being out of control. You're talking about wanting to retain control in the sense of the brand identity. This thing about control seems to be really difficult um, in a mobile and a digital period because... Uh, It's distributed, Um, but having said that, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1770, or a bit later, was complaining in in the reveries of a solitary walker that he felt yanked out of the natural order of things uh, by the way that his life was going and the way society was functioning around him, and that the more he tried to understand, the less he knew about what was happening, which I think is a really familiar thing. And if you go forward 200 years to the the 1970s, you get Alvin Toftler writing about future shock and information overload. Information overload is a buzzword now, um, but it comes from a time which predates mobiles and digital and so on. Um, can I do it with funny story as well? Go on. Um, yes. Just very quickly, I think this is important. Um, uh, touch uh, remains a really, really important physical thing, and I used to t- well, obviously physical thing, really important thing to, to us as humans. And I used to tell this as a, a counter story to the fear of digital taking over, but I was in Moscow a couple of years ago, and I was doing a TV thing, and the interviewer asked me, you have special connection with Russia, and I don't, so I was a bit stumped, Um, and I said, every writer longs to have a connection with the country of Pushkin and Pasternak, and she gave me this polite, literary, are you on crack face, and we moved on. (laughs) Um, And as I was leaving, very solemnly, she took me by the shoulders and gave me big kiss on each cheek and it was like the godfather it was a real kind of pow and i eventually figured out because i had to ask people what this was about eventually figured out there is a myth that i was kissed in my cradle by joseph brodsky Um, i was fifteen when joseph brodsky came to london so i wasn't in a cradle and he certainly didn't kiss me but she was kissing poetry off my cheeks that was the idea she wanted the blessing of brodsky's poetry touch is really central to us now. Interesting thing, last couple of weeks, it's, it turns out that various makers of electronics goods are trying to make touch screens which appear to change their texture, which can resist the passage of your fingers across the touch screen. When you look at science fiction movies, which is a kind of good predictor or influencer of how technology develops, people are rolling up their sleeves and shoving their hands into um, tanks of goo in order to control and touch data. Touch is, is mixing with the real world and data is mixing with the real world and we're beginning to realise it's just an overlay it's not another world at all, it's all around us
2: One of the very fascinating things that Julia said in her inaugural lecture as the world's first prof of networking was quoting somebody, I can't remember who um, that in real life people can only quote cope with about 150 people only know feel they know, understand, recognize consistently. And I think we're about 150 here. There's a thought. So we could all get fantastically well acquainted. There's another thought. Derek.
7: Uh, I just wonder whether the touch will be on your book. I think it's got great potential. Um, well, I just, um, this is an idea really. In 2008, I decided I wanted to go and work for Obama in the election and uh, every four years we have these two different orbits. We have an Olympic Games and we have a presidential election and they clash and they're the two big things that actually change the world in terms of software and hardware and ideas because uh, they have to be done at a certain date. Um, and I went, I went to Chicago and I saw these nascent, this nascent online stuff and they were probably getting an average day well, I'm going to sort of bluff, but maybe 5 or $10 million online. So they built a platform to raise money because he had none. And they raised, uh, in, the, in the space of nine months, they raised $750 million. And when I went for my interview at Trinity to um, chair the hospice, we're a start-up every year. Every April, I have to start again and raise $9 pounds, provide free end-of-life care to six boroughs in this, in this city. It's not easy raising that sort of cash. And of course I was terribly attracted to what Blue State Digital had done for Obama. And so they were here. They tried to pitch for the Labour account actually in 2010. But since they've arrived in London, they've done the AV uh, uh, referendum, they've done save the post offices. They've got about 20 accounts at the moment. I find them rather entertaining and they're all under 12 years of age, which is quite threatening. And of course we have now borrowed much of their toolkit for online giving, which we didn't have. No one gives us 10 pounds a week or five pounds a day, but now they do because we've reached out using the email system that borrowing some of the ideas that Obama had in 2008, and it's working for us here. So I find that rather connected. So my son is 20, he's doing politics at Bath. He came back on Tuesday morning having done eight days with Obama in Chicago. Uh, And he's come back with the new toolkit, which is so fantastic. I'm sort of still breathless from his... We spent an hour and a half yesterday going through it because he still can get into it because he's got the codes. And the difference is Romney has more money than Obama by, by by probably times two. Probably Mitt will have about $2 billion and probably Obama have $1 billion. Now, you can find this obscene, which I do, but that's American politics. The difference is Obama's now got to actually campaign at a micro level. So having raised the money at a micro, this time they're campaigning. And I saw the sort of chart for Illinois. And if we get even close at the next general election here, we'll have done well. But it is quite breathtaking. Gradually as we move to the election in November, this will come out. But I can't tell you if you're interested in, in this, and if you're interested in fundamental change in campaigning, they are so far ahead. It was breathtaking. I've already, you know, I spoke to my son this morning and said, listen, I've rung the Labour Party, you're in next week, you've got to give them the same download. So the pace and the ideas are going faster.
1: Um, All that learning um, and, you know, we saw how lots of people said that it was the use of social media that helped Obama last time. Looking at politicians in this country, I mean, I I would say many of them are missing a huge trick. Do you think any of them are sort of harnessing this identity?
7: And social media no no, I, I think it 's very easy to have a wallop at them, and I, I used to do that regularly, but <laughs> the thing is there are about nine hundred policy areas for an MP to, to look after and if you 're going to do housing, there are four hundred people that like doing social housing well it 's probably not a good idea you 've got to try and find a space for yourself well there 's probably twelve people in the House of Commons and House of Lords interested in social networking. Yeah. And, so. and that's good because there are 12 people interested in DNA and there are 12 people interested in something else. And, and that's the strength of the democracy we have. Yeah.
2: Okay. A lot of that money, particularly I would boldly suggest the Romney money, but on both sides, will go on disinformation on fantastically mm-hmm. systematic modern online disinformation and the tinkering with people's identities in both both ways, positive and negative, a lot of it negative because disinformation is one of the great identity gifts of the new technology. Anyone care to
7: run with that because yeah, who that. knows how it's Can done? I contradict you? Because I think, I think what Caroline said about branding, it would not be, so the barackobama.com website, it would not be sensible for any of that to happen on that site. So of course what the Americans have done have set up these packs. So the PACs are the, bra- are the power brace. They raise the funding. Obama can't control, nor can Romney, what they're doing. And it's the PACs, actually, that will be doing that. It's very regrettable.
4: Can I pick up on that? And, um,
7: I think this is actually quite
4: interesting in the context of what I was saying earlier about multiple authorship and reading multiple authors on the same topic, multiple viewpoints. That I think when you do that, if you, if you learn the skill properly and focus, you reduce the likelihood that you will get a completely false impression of what's going on. Obviously, if you choose your sources poorly or if you pick them all from one side of the spectrum, you can get a, a mistaken perception. But I think this is very apparent when you... People used to complain about Wikipedia and say, oh, it's so inaccurate, and it turns out it has the same error rate as the Britannica. That actually just makes me really twitchy about the Britannica, because when I look at sort of my Wikipedia entry, is all backed up with contemporary newspapers, and a great deal of it is wrong. Um, because the newspaper reports in the first place were wrong. Um, so then when you look at the Britannica, that was also sourced in the, in the same way. It's sourced from contemporary accounts. Well, those contemporary accounts will be just as inaccurate, possibly more so, as the ones we have now. Single sources, even, you know, I, the, the, even the authoritative ones, can be mistaken. But The more you look out to multiple sources, the better your chance of tracking the truth, not focusing on it in a single way, but seeing the points that make up something that tells you where the target is. So I
3: think disinformation potentially is harder. People are more conscious of the possibility of it now. And I think people are building platforms off the back of that notion. So if you look in the trading space, people are building platforms to crawl Twitter, to look at the uh, emotive kind of, whatever you call it, the slant of the, the emotion in the language that people are using on Twitter, surrounding certain brands to predict fluctuations, you know, watching traders and people like that to see, they're, they're not, uh, not explicitly, but implicitly, how they're feeling to predict the, the trends of what's going to happen. And it's incredibly a- accurate, actually. So, it, and, and that's an example of not trusting one source, but, you know, looking at the aggregated voice.
4: I think that actually, interestingly, is one of the places where the rubber meets the road on privacy. Um, not the, the person who's Facebook stalking you or vice versa. Um, but... Uh, the fact that you can take the collected data of people's activity on something like Twitter. There's a there's um, a study which shows a kind of global Twitter mood arc across the course of the week. So you know Tuesday afternoon is a great time to sell to people, so on, um, because they're perky and upbeat and they feel like buying something. Um, or something like that. I think the problem is that uh, this dovetails with this this recent idea of choice architecture, of nudging, the the idea that you present a choice which is, on the one hand, sort of 80% loaded in this direction. On the other hand, this is really difficult and complicated, so everyone's going to go this way. And if you can, obviously, if you can predict people's moods and if you can learn about how they make choices more and more, you can do that better and better. I find choice architecture and nudging, as it's called, profoundly undemocratic. I think it encourages a bad habit of choice making, where you're just not used to making hard choices, so you don't, you haven't got the skill, but also I think it presents people with bad information. The idea of making decisions is democratic and it's capitalist. It's how everything that we do is premised. If we dilute people's ability to do it, we dilute our democracy.
3: I just say one more thing and you know every 2 or 3 days we create as much data personal data as was in the world up until 2003. So there's an absolute explosion in personal data. What there is a massive proliferation of is you know qualitative data like written language. But as commerce is moving more into the mobile and social world whether it be giving commerce or you know purchasing goods what you can see is the the, 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 you can see the quantitative data as well. You can see, you know, I sit on a, a committee at UCL and they talk all the time about how every individual application's personal statement is like the, the best piece of creative writing you've ever witnessed. <laughs> you know, I've saved th- three babies from dying of, you know, terminal illness. I've trawled the world. I, you know, it's, it's fantastical language. But actually what we're beginning to look at now in terms of their application process is quantitative data. It's like, let's start tracking what you actually do to, to, to contribute towards a, a better world, whether that's hours on the clock, whether that's cash given, whether that's stuff you've given away, like stuff that actually matters. And, you know, my history is in online marketing, managing people's ads on Google and the like, and that is ROI. You know, we focus on what is the the facts. What are the facts? And if you want the facts, you have to follow where the money went, <laughs> where it came from and where it went to. And that often leads you to the truth of what people's intentions are, what their incentives are, and what they're truly interested in. So I think, we, you know, we've moved our conversation online and, uh, you know, and into a social mobile kind of paradigm. And the, the money trail is... Following, and when people start making the money trail more transparent, that's when we can trust individual voices a bit more. So I, I, I like the idea of real data, real financial data, um, individually, corporately, whatever, um, and that's where that's where the authenticity comes from. So.
6: Can I say something on the, the Twitter data. I think the idea from me of the idea of following a Twitter mood arc just sounds completely horrifying. And completely would skew our journalism if we we have a real issue with data at the moment. How do we use data best? Because if you if we had the number of crunches upstairs analysing the data, they would kill lots of bureaus off because you don't have lots of interest in, in reading people online. But if we hadn't had someone in Greece you know, five years ago and paid money as a foreign correspondent to have someone there on the ground, you wouldn't have such great reporting now. And I think there's a real tension about how far we follow the data as a news organisation and get obsessed by it, because then you end up running sort of op-eds by mad people because, you know, they're going to get picked up online. You know, and so I think we have a real debate at the moment about what data should we really care about and be following as a media organisation
1: you're all being very very quiet and we're talking a lot so i'm hoping that some people have got some questions or maybe some funny stories about facebook that they want to share
8: thank you very much simon goldie from lexus nexus no funny stories about facebook at least none i can tell publicly um but I, i just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that were said one one was about the amount of information out there and that helps you sort of work out the truth but i wonder how do you work out what's the truth and what isn't from that and that sort of links rather to peter's point about politicians using money to put out disinformation. I think perhaps more they'll use money to frame their opponent because politicians are storytellers and they want to place their opponent, not necessarily to falsify what the opponent's about, but to say, look, this is really their position and and they'll frame it in their way in order to help them. So for a voter or a member of the public faced with all this, how on earth... Do you work out, you know, what is the truth or the reality or your truth, I suppose? Perhaps that's what you need to search for.
2: Very large numbers of Americans believe in research that Obama is an Arab. Um, Do you remember the thing with McCain where a woman stood up and said, but he is an Arab, and McCain said, no. This is a story Justin Webb tells because he was there. He is not an Arab, he is a family man. But by then, uh, by then, on the world's networks, and it had originally arisen online,
7: that story was there, and it is very, very widely believed. Sorry. Do you not think that, um, I'll use the term Arab Spring, but there's something going on in the Western world as well. It's not just the banking and the politics, but... There's a significant change from people who are, who are just not engaged in old-style organisations, one of which is, unfortunately, the system called Parliament here, or it's United Nations, or whatever it is, it's out of date, it's out of touch, it doesn't work. So what has to happen is the grassroots system. Now, I'm not saying that Obama's tracked this, but having seen the number of contacts that they have got faced, linked, you know, the lot is all interconnected, Listen, he will get more people out for his vote in the in the swing states and he'll win just because of what they've planned a year ago.
5: The ecology, this new ecology, there there is certainly an aspect which is impressionistics, which is really what you are describing, so you you generate impressions from multiple sources, you are still the you are still the recipient and the <coughs> moulder of your own impressions, but I think you will also seek uh, trusted filters. The, you know that, that is obviously a cliche, information overload needs trusted filters, so I think there will be, and I think more money needs to change hands for trusted filters, so I think we do need to change the model of quality journalism to some extent and trusted sources. The other thing that I think is very important in, in maintaining kind of web freedom in the kind of era where we're all concerned about privacy and our... our People being able to read us as a data point is that we should preserve above all the principle of web anonymity. And I know that there is a real movement against this, particularly among the people who want to use and capture our data in order to know us better and sell us more. And you know, I, I'm in that world, so I don't disagree with that. But we need to preserve web anonymity. Some of the very best things that happen online. Happen uh, only because people are able to comment and, uh, uh, anonymously. So, all of the people in Tahrir Square, many of them, the Arab Spring was all, anyone in an oppressive regime needs to be able to have an, a, an anonymous source. Equally, and much closer to home, the, the not for profit thing that I run called Horses Mouth, which is online mentoring, is people mentoring each other on very, very personal, important highly authentic and highly honest um, issues but they would not want to be sharing the fact that they're an alcoholic or they've got depression or they're they're caring for their mother with alzheimer's on their social graph so they need that that principle of anonymity needs to be preserved in the moral panic around privacy and data i
4: think another way that you can um, sort of assess the truth or falsehood of something is is by sort of feeding it into a smart crowd, which is sort of a cliched answer now. But if you can, for example, create a situation where a large number of people bet whether it's tokens or money. On you know which of a v- bunch of various truths is, is actually the one which is real, they guess very well uh, you know across the the, the aggregate. Um, there are there are ways of corrupting smart crowds. One of the reasons I think that um, people are a bit distrustful of parliament is an, is an awareness, whether it's tacit or, or overt, that. Um, A group of 600 people making intelligent decisions, each of which they've thought out individually, ought to make very good choices. But as soon as you introduce uh, a system of parties and whips, that ability to make smart crowd decisions degrades massively. Um, Being a member of a smart crowd, using smart crowds, is actually not an effortless undertaking. I think part of the problem with a lot of things in the digital world and the mobile world is that people have been told they'll be easy. And very little that's worthwhile is easy. Um, and similarly people have been told things will be free not in a kind of, you know, I'm not sort of jumping on and shouting at Chris Anderson or someone just, I think during the 90s particularly it was advantageous, and uh, the early 2000s, it was advantageous to governments and corporations both to tell us that things would get cheaper and would be free um, and nothing is um, it's, it's almost thermodynamics, nothing's free
3: Just quickly on the anonymity issue I, I, I only see that being anonymous is better as a plan B in the absence of trust. You know, where you truly trust someone. Sometimes there's professional distance, which is helpful to, you know, petition your life and have certain, you know, you know, boxes that help you sort of get on with life. But mainly for me, where I want anonymity is where I don't trust the other party, either the, the owner, you know, in, maybe in Facebook's terms, maybe you don't trust them having your data. But in a real-world relationship, you like to be known. You know, I like iTunes knowing who I am and knowing my wallet because I feel like they treat me pretty well you know they recommend good things and don't overload me with loads of junk and it's like it's a good relationship it works it's quite healthy and balanced
5: it's not about being false it's about not having to be identified so Mm. identifiers are different from identity Uh, and on horse's mouth we have captains of industry who are mentoring around starting up business, who are also suffering from depression. Now, those people do not want to have their identity attached to that profile, but their activity is entirely honest and it's in a trust environment. There are situations, we cannot just blanketly say, Anonymity creates de- negative situations. There are situations in which it works, and also you have to create cultures. I mean, this is—I think this is what Nick is saying. Online, you know, we can't just be passive. We have to actively work hard to make things good. We have to work really hard at it to create, to invest in cultures, to invest in communities, to invest in uh, the way that we manage communities, the, the, the way that we create, create them. This all takes work. It takes work. It takes money. This isn't cheap, it isn't free, it isn't easy. It's a,
1: very, it's a complicated topic, I think, about that, because, you know, allowing people to comment, and we've spoke about this a lot, about sort of the trolling aspect, which is sort of a big popular news topic at the moment. Um, but we have, on the Huffington Post, every page has a send us a correction button. Um, and it's brilliant, because people will, you know, they'll spot a typo, or they might have some more information on a story. Um, but the emails that come through can be pretty horrible to, to use, the, uh, use the word and you know oh none of you journalists can write and you don't know what you're doing and you know effing and blinding at you and we have a policy that we reply to every single one of those emails usually saying thank you for pointing this out or or well we actually spell it that way because we're a british site and you're reading it from america and we don't use z's quite as much as you do uh, please continue to use the site we send these very nice emails back and it's amazing how many then reply and say Oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, I'm sure my first email came across um, uh, and I didn't mean it to come across yeah. that way and I, and I didn't realise and actually I love your site and I read it all the time. And it's when they can see that there's a person behind it, it changes their attitude yeah. a lot. But I also take that point that if people want to talk about uprising in the Arab Spring, that they should be able to do that without worrying that that government will be able to target them. It's actually also
5: to do with one-to-one communication. If you think about it, if you're having a conversation with AN another individual, you are almost always incredibly polite, unless you're having an argument. If you're in a group, you are more likely to argue, you're more likely to take sides, you're more likely to create factions. So if it's a community forum, if it's an open forum, a comment board, you are likely to get trolling. If it's a one-to-one conversation, people will not behave badly. They will tend to put their best selves forward. So again, but it's, it's understanding those
1: differences. This is where we, um, and you know, I'm, I'm not a fan and, and, and being part of the Leveson inquiry this year, and, you know, I don't want the government to suddenly come and clamp down on freedom of the press. But, but I think we do need some, some of our laws updated. For instance, again, in America on the Huffington Post, we can pre-moderate all our comments Over here, if you pre-moderate anything, you are then at risk if anything does get through, that you're liable for that. And that means that's why we get these terrible comments on sites like the Daily Mail, um, because actually it is in the interest of the business not to moderate those conversations, which makes it this horrible free-for-all. And I think then there needs to be sort of a sensible sensible laws made or at least a sensible discussion about the fact that if an organisation wants to partake in that and to try and be a host of a you know a conversation that can be argumentative but doesn't get personal that there should be support to do that
2: but it is completely jaw-dropping what you see of the contents of people's heads for instance on the daily mail site and it's very very revealing uh, with the cover of anonymity of unaccountability People
4: say some pretty nasty things. I think, I mean, this is the I mean, the classic exchange about deindividuation. Um, does, is everyone familiar with the Stanford prison experiment, the Philip Zimbardo? So, very briefly, um, he recruited a bunch of uh, students from Stanford, um, screened them for antisocial personality traits, aggressive narcissism, and so on. So, these were the people least likely to become dangerous to one another that he could find and then he divided them up arbitrarily as prison guards or prisoners and put them into the basement under Stanford. The experiment was supposed to run for two weeks, he had to stop it after about three or four days because they were brutalizing one another. (laughs) The reason, as it turns out, was because they were all of them caught in a kind of loop. The guards and the prisoners believed that he would stop the experiment if they began to behave badly, if they began to go beyond what was acceptable. So they'd abdicated their moral sense. And having done that, they then saw each other as members of opposite teams, as faceless, as uh, ciphers, as the enemy. Um, and it's very easy then to go over the top. Zimbabwe's experiments derive from um, Stanley Milgram's work on uh, essentially on the Holocaust. Um, and Milgram's uh, book about this, the, the Lucifer Effect, is one of the most, the introduction is one of the most awful things I've ever read. His guilt about having allowed it to continue to this day is burningly hot. And the reason ultimately that he did that was that he too believed that he was fulfilling the role of the objective observer and it was not appropriate for him to stop this conduct because it was part of the experiment. And he imagined that they would stop because they were human beings he'd screened for antisocial behaviour traits. The whole thing was a kind of loop where nobody had responsibility. But the reason that it was possible for it to take place was because everybody had become... um, They had been given a role which they were taking on, and that was all that they were. They were de-individuated. And you see it in the queue. When I buy parking permits in Camden, the guy in front of me in the queue is always yelling because he hasn't got the right piece of documentation. The person on the other side of the glass is always saying you haven't got the right documentation. There's always a fight. Part of the reason for that is because they're in roles and there's a bulletproof glass partition between them. It's much, much harder to do that stuff if you know the other person. And when you talk about responding to these comments in a kind of positive way, I've done exactly the same thing. You re-individuate, you make the human connection and human connection is what it's all about.
9: Nico McDonald, um, I read a piece in the online journalism review about comment is free when it was uh, new, inspired by the Huffington Post as it happens. And suggested that part of the reason that people are so rude in those spaces is because of the lack of connection back to the people who post those comments. And I suggested that an appropriate model for The Guardian might be to have people post in their own space, uh, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on their own web blog, and use a tool like Trackback, which has sadly died on the web, to repost an excerpt of that in their space, so that if Peter York posted something... ...outrageous or scandalous, you could go back to his site and see what else he's written... ...and Peter York would have, uh, on his own site, posted something outrageous and scandalous... ...and his people who he wants to impress would not be impressed. Um, the, F- the Guardian hasn't pursued that model, and I'm sad to say, nor is the FT, although I'm a friend of the FT. I, I do suggest that in, on the web we are able to distribute and reaggregate information very easily... ...and it's very odd that we don't do that... And it's odd also in another sense, and we're looking at ideas as well as identity in this session, that although we can distribute information around the world and the click of a, you know, post this tweet button, and we can get information instantly, when we want information about something, we want to understand something, actually there are fewer and fewer places that you can go where you can actually learn and understand about something which isn't necessarily in the news now, isn't necessarily a current issue. And I do wonder how in our culture we can improve the ways beyond Wikipedia, which is obviously a fabulous thing, that when we have a profound idea, to, desire to understand something, investigate it and make something more of it, we can find ways to aggregate and contextualise and editorialise information more effectively so that our cultural knowledge can can improve. Do people on the panel think that's an accurate representation of the situation now? And if so, how can we better create a new space for knowledge and wisdom and inquiry than just... Twitter which passes in the night I sort of
4: think, sorry, I sort of think that's what books are for I, being a novelist and a writer I mean you know I really, when you're talking about concentrated information you want to take something which is not ephemeral and learn about it books or, or sort of long-lasting online resources
6: a slightly different yeah. way um, I used to run the opinion pages of the Financial Times and we would get in 50 unsolicited opinion pieces every day you know, we obviously had a, a choice: do we put them all up online? You know, sort of comment is free. They're all kind of interesting pieces, varied. They all have a point of view. Or do we basically limit the number of pieces we put up? And it's about brand and authority, and we are making the selection for you, which is obviously a more top-down model. And we continue to have a more of a essentially a top-down model in terms of, and that gives us, I think, authority in where place that you go, which is trusted, to have that debate.
1: I think with the Huffington Post we do uh, sort of a bit of both, so our blogging platform is a platform, it's open to anyone, um, and we publish a larger percentage of the blogs that come in, some are turned away if we're worried about uh, legal issues with it, or it, you know the writing is, is so unintelligible that no one wants to read it, but then the editing process comes in as to where we place that, do we place it on the front page of the site, where lots and lots of people are going to see it, do we then place it in a certain section um, of the site, and those, because the limit of space, and we try and leave them up for a, for about a day so that more people will see it, there is that. There's the top down, but then there is the breadth as well of opinion. And then we send that out to the person who's posted that, and then they can promote that as well if they want to, via Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or emailing it to their friends, and then it is obviously searchable as well. So we've tried to sort of take a, a bit of a best of both worlds with
3: that. I think at the end of the day, you trust different brands to do different things, and there's a there's a payoff and a trade-off for, you know, the breadth versus the, the the kind of the curation, as it were. So, you know, in a previous life, I, I helped Mr and Mrs Smith, the boutique hotel guys, um, launch their mobile application. We built that for them. And when they launched, they launched with 30 hotels. You know, in the when you've got lastminute.com and you've got all this stuff lying around with every sort of place to stay and every way to travel under the sun, you know, they launched with 30 hotels, which you didn't think would be possible, really, for a modern kind of forward-thinking business but it's because you trust their curation abilities and there's a cost that comes with that but similarly as long as as long as a brand you know like the FT, you know you've taken a stance and so people recognize your brand for doing that and so if you like that you go there and if you want you know and then you're slightly further down you kind of embrace a bit more of the buzz and uh you know i think the brand just needs to stay true to what you think it does
2: i think that's a very important branding truth because a lot of brands who aren't quite sure of their identities and are slightly stymied um, by new technologies pretend to be bottom-up brands when they're really top-down brands. And then you grow to love them less.
1: Question at the front here.
10: Hi, yes, uh, Jane Caldwell from Kids' Company. Um, Just something that you touched on, um, and given that we're in Channel 4, I remember when Channel 4 started and there was a, a quote from Jeremy Isaacs which was, um comment is free opinion is free and fact is expensive um that you know that was fairly prophetic given um the proliferation of information and on the one hand you can see that as increase democratisation of information and greater representation, which certainly at the the advent of Channel 4, that was very much a driver behind all of the reality programmes and the Vox Boxes and the opinions that they were gathering and presenting on their television channels. Um, As we move forward, do you think that this um, democratisation of information has led to um, a, a brighter society, or has it had a sort of dumbing down um trivialization of information um you know you just commented on a website and one of the things you said was there's a cost attached to it do you know are we sort of entering into a place where you have to be rich to get good information just
7: do a hands up how many people take a paid for uh, content information email in the mornings on their systems anyone pay for newsletters one i mean listen why why well because you know we choose to actually want to be ahead you want to be ahead of the curve, how do you get ahead of the curve? You pay for information because you think it will give you that extra buzz. So I, don't, I don't think you can do it any other way. Sure, but tell, tell me what's free. The BBC has a licence fee. OK, ITV isn't, but, but it gets its money from advertising. How do, you, how do you give it free? Well, you can do give me things, they come and go, I can tell you.
3: It also depends what access to what audience you had previously, because me with my amateur guitar hat on again, you know, five years ago, I threw up a little cover of a Sting song that I did and managed to get 50,000 views. It was a one-off. But that was because it kind of, I put the right tags in, so it came up. If you were looking for Sting, you found me, which is a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people. <laughs> but, but I got a, re- a range of different comments. It was the kind of level of feedback I would never get in the real world. So for me, that kind of opening my audience to 50,000 people where, trust me, I wouldn't even get on an open mic night. Had some varied results. And finally, going back to the community moderation, I, uh, you know, I was, you kind of forget about the haters kind of mentality. So I delete any bad comments to begin with. And then I thought, well, I'll just leave them, you know, and some people said some weird things. I didn't know if it was positive or negative. They said, you're about as sensual as an oyster. And I'm like, maybe that's good, oysters, <laughs> <laughs> aphrodisiacs, I don't know, I, don't know. I, I still don't know to this day what they meant, but what I found was when I left the comments on, even the negative ones, actually the community, who could see I was trying at least, began to respond back and argue quite fervently at times, like quite aggressively on my behalf, so I think it does depend how you mo- what relationships you currently have, how you can or can't monetize them and how the web enables you
10: to, so to further that about something that you've done, which is different from the presentation of um, sort of d- deep conversations about uh, about things that are happening in society. Yeah, They're admittedly. If you're not
5: paying, then you're the product. And I think that is, that is the, the, the fundamental model that has historically sustained, subsidised free or virtually free. If you think about the costs involved in producing a newspaper and the huge amount of data, and information, and expertise, and effort, and and investment that goes into this bit of paper that we used to buy every day. Uh, It's huge, and we basically give it away for virtually enough. So we taught people that this was cheap because advertising was subsidising it, and, of course, that is the crisis that we now have, and we have to pull ourselves out of that. Quality journalism does have to find ways to be paid for, um, because it's valuable. Um, And in this country, we're very lucky to have some subsidy of public information. So even though there's a licence fee, that, again, is very cheap for what we get for it, I think. So it is that model. We
1: found even when we... um, Anyone who works on a website will, or anyone who's using a website will probably have seen recently things coming up saying, there are cookies on this site, do you want to opt out? Um, and you know, an awful lot of work and a lot of money is being spent with uh, digital companies making sure that happens. The number of people who have opted out of the cookies is absolutely minuscule. And I think that you know, all this was put in place, it's taken years to get to this stage, um, to empower people using websites to keep hold of their information. And actually, the vast majority are saying, that's fine, I'm quite that's happy with that.
5: It's a pretty good contract, and we can all be paranoid about when it might, the circumstances under which it might be abused, but it's a pretty good contract. And big data, you know, which sounds horrible, um, is probably part of the answer to how we will keep quality journalism and quality products do alive Sorry. do
4: you have um, do you have numbers on how many people uh, accept the cooking